Amen. At this time, uh, if you are kindergarten or younger, you are dismissed with those who will go with you. I think the kids may have already left for children's church. That's great. We've got them trained. They just go without even being asked to, to do so. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth. I can't think of a better theological foundation to give you for what you've already heard and seen here today played out in a very practical way before you. Because the book of Ruth is a book about the steadfast love of the Lord, his covenant faithfulness, as exemplified and demonstrated by the people of God that he has drawn to himself. So we're in the book of Ruth. It takes place about 11 or 1,200 years before the time of Christ. It is at the time when the judges were ruling because there was no king in Israel. So this is a fitting um, conclusion to our study of the book of Judges because it takes place during that time and gets us up to the kings. And before I read the first five verses of the book of Ruth, I want to introduce you to the three main characters. There are a lot of folks in this book, but I want to introduce you to the three main characters so you can be listening for them. Uh, the first main character I want to introduce you to in the book of Ruth, as you might guess, is Ruth. Ruth, at the beginning of the book, is not among the people of God. She is not an Israelite. She lives in Moab, which is present-day Jordan. And in this story, Ruth is a picture of, a demonstration of, a manifestation of God's covenant faithfulness and steadfast love. And we see it in her relationship to her mother-in-law, who is a widow early on in the story. So be looking for that in the character of Ruth. The second character that we often talk about in the book of Ruth is Boaz. Boaz is an Israelite. He lives in Bethlehem. He is a wealthy man. He owns land. He has lots of people who work for him. And Boaz is also a picture of, a demonstration of, a manifestation of God's covenant faithfulness and steadfast love to his people as shown in his care and his attentiveness to not just one, but two widows in the story. And that brings me to the third character, Naomi. I am going to argue today that Naomi is actually the main character in this book. Maybe we should call it the book of Naomi instead of the book of Ruth. And the reason I say that is you're going to see the book begins with Naomi. The book ends with Naomi. Whereas Ruth and Boaz are static characters, they stay the same in showing God's covenant faithfulness and steadfast love. Naomi's the dynamic character. She's the one that changes over the course of the story. And it's to Naomi that God is primarily speaking. And through God speaking to Naomi, God speaks to all of his people. So we are to identify in this story with Naomi. So let's dive in together and look at this phenomenal story, really well written. If you're a literature person, excellent writing here, and I'll point out some of those literary features as we go. In Ruth chapter 1, let's read the first five verses. Hear now God's word. 
In the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Epaphrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went to the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband." Our story opens with a rather ominous beginning. There is a famine in the land, in God's promised land that he has given his people. And so this man who lives in Bethlehem is leaving the promised land. And you need to understand, if you're the original audience and you hear a story where God's people are leaving the promised land, your immediate reaction is, okay, this is not going to be good. Because if you've been reading in the story, it is never good when God's people leave the promised land. Abram twice leaves and goes to Egypt, lies, gets into all kinds of trouble. Joseph sold into slavery into a foreign land and leaves not of his own accord. Jacob goes down with his 12 sons to avoid a famine and they become enslaved for 400 years. So when people hear, oh, God's people are leaving the promised land... It is not a good thing. And sure enough, by the time you get to verse 3, Elimelech dies. And then there seems to be a time of happiness for about 10 years. Naomi is there with her two sons. They take Moabite wives, and things seem to go well. And then her two sons die. Now, it is hard enough to lose a spouse. And I've heard people say that to lose a child is one of the most difficult things we go through as human beings. But this woman loses her spouse and then loses two children. And she is heartbroken. And the narrator shows great tenderness here. If you look at the original text in Hebrew in verse 1, it says that this man leaves with his wife and two sons, and there's one word in the Hebrew, and his two sons, and they're named, and then she is left with her two sons. All those are one word in the Hebrew, but right here at the end of verse 5, where it says so that the woman was left without her two sons, the word actually changes. And it's an important word for the text. I don't do a lot of Hebrew and Greek, but it's important because the author changes the word for sons. And the word he uses is yelled. Let me show that one to you. So Naomi lost her yelled. And the reason this word is important is because everywhere else it's used, almost exclusively in the scripture, it's used of little children, small children. But these are grown men who have already taken wives at the point that they die. So the author is saying and changing to this word that Naomi has lost her spouse and her little boys. Her young ones, even though they're grown, they, she still sees them that way in her heart. And the narrator is so, is so tender as he tells the story in this way. And this is going to become an important word in the text. So I want you to learn this word, yelled. So if, I want you to say it after me, yelled. 
good, yell it. Okay, that's going to be important to the text that Naomi lost her yell it. And as a result of all that has happened, Naomi concludes that God is against her. And that is an easy thing for us to do. We often, when we face hardship, will conclude that God has abandoned us, or that God is against us, or that he doesn't care about us, or if he does love us, he must not be all-powerful. But we often, when we face hardship, conclude that God is not there, or that he doesn't care. And in those moments, when we are hurting, it is hard for us to hear or to believe anything else. That's where Naomi is here at this point in the text. She hears the famine is over, and so she's going to go back to Bethlehem, and she tells her daughter-in-laws to go back to their family. Go back to your family. You're still young. You can marry other men. You can still have children at some point in the future. But she says, I am old, and I'm not going to get married again, and I'm not going to have any sons, and if I do, they're going to be too young to marry you. Life has been bitter for me. I just want you to go back to your family and I'm going to go back home because of all that has happened. So Kilion's widow, Orpha, leaves, but Malon's widow, Ruth, clings to Naomi. And you need to understand, this word cling is a covenant word. It's the same used in Genesis 2 of a marriage covenant where a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife. It means to join together. It's often used in a covenant context. So when the original audience hears that Ruth clings to Naomi, they're thinking covenant thoughts. But remember, Naomi's bitter. And she says, look in verse 15, Naomi says, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Wow, that is quite a vow. Do you hear what she's saying? Ruth, who is in her homeland of Moab, is saying that she's willing to leave her homeland... She's willing to leave her family, all that she's ever known, to go to this other place that she has never been, back to Bethlehem in God's promised land, to convert her religion to Naomi's religion, to leave her own gods, that Naomi's God would be her God. And she makes a lifelong commitment. Notice, it's not just until Naomi dies, but even after you die, I'm going to die where you die. So it's a commitment not just for the length of Naomi's life, that when Naomi dies, she can go back. No, she says, where you die, I'm going to die, and I'm going to be buried right there. It's a huge vow. It's a huge commitment. And do you see what's going on in the text? God is giving Naomi this picture of his never ending steadfast love in this vow that Ruth is making and in her presence with her that she has not been abandoned. 
But Naomi is so hurt, she can't hear God whispering to her because of all the tragedies that she has faced. Listen, you may be at that point today, and this book has something to say to you. You may know someone who is here, and you've told them what's true before, and they just can't hear it. This book is for you. And because we live in a broken and messed up world, if the Lord tarries, we will all be in this place one day. So this book has much to say to us. You see Naomi's tragedies that she has as they head back to Bethlehem. Keep going in the text, verse 18. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? So you see what's going on here. They're coming back at the time of the harvest, so people are outside. Naomi's been gone at least 10 years. Bethlehem's not that big of a place. And so everybody's outside, and they're looking, and they see, and they're saying, is that, is that Naomi coming back? Is that, is that, could it be Naomi? Is that you? And Naomi's voice of rebuke cuts through the celebration. Look what she says in verse 20. She said to them, do not call me Naomi, which you need to know in Hebrew means sweet or pleasant. She says, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me sweet. Don't call me pleasant. That's a joke. She says, I've got a new name now. What does she say? Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity against me? Even though God has whispered his love and demonstrated his faithfulness in providing Ruth, Naomi can't hear it. She's bitter. And she says that she left with her husband and sons and she comes back without them, so she comes back empty. That's another important word in the story. Naomi lost her yellow, and then Naomi says, I came back empty. That's going to be important as the story unfolds. Before we go on, I just want you to know that many of us feel the same way as Naomi. And because of hard times, we often conclude that God has abandoned us or he doesn't care about us. And I want you to know that this book does not come to that same conclusion. The message of this book is the fact that we face hard times does not mean that God is against us or that God has abandoned us. Now, in this book, we're not told exactly why bad things happen to God's people, but we are told what the reason is not. And it's not because God has left us or because God has abandoned us. In fact, if we're listening, each chapter we will hear God whispering and then speaking louder to Naomi and to us as he says to her, please know that hard times in your life do not mean that I have abandoned you. Please know that I am 
with you in the midst of hard times, and I'll always be with you, working all things for your good because of my never-ending steadfast love for you. Now, how has God said that in chapter 1? Well, by providing Ruth, her vow, by providing her presence, her faithfulness, and coming alongside of Naomi, but Naomi can't hear it. But God continues to whisper these words, even using Naomi's own words. And she ministers to her through Ruth, and then through another that we meet in chapter 2. Chapter 2 introduces us to Boaz. Now, it's important for you to know in chapter 2 that Ruth doesn't know anybody in town. She just moved here from another country. And they don't have any food. And so Ruth says to Naomi, I'm going to go and glean in the fields. You see, in Israel, when people harvested their fields, they didn't harvest. The law said you don't harvest all the way to the edges, that you leave some on the edges for the poor, for widows, for immigrants. Ruth is a widow (laughs) gathering for a widow, Naomi, and she's an immigrant from another country. And so folks would, would take the barley and they would cut it and then set it down and then go to the next part. And somebody else would come along behind them and pick it up. And they were supposed to leave some of the things that fell out of the heap for the poor, for widows, for immigrants. And so that's what Ruth is going to do. She's going to glean. And she doesn't know anybody in the town. But look what the narrator says in verses 3 and 4. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, just at that time, Boaz came from Bethlehem. You see what's happening there? She's just going out to try to get food. And it's not a haphazard thing that has happened. God is at work. God is directing Ruth to the place that he wants her to go. God is directing that Boaz will be there when she's there. And remember, Bethlehem's not a big place, so Boaz looks out. He sees that the people are there. He recognizes them except for this one woman, and he asks who she is. And he's told the story, and he hears what happens. But the point here is, God is at work. Boaz sees Ruth. God grants her favor in Boaz's eyes. He gives her water. He protects her. He gives her provisions. Ruth doesn't even know what's going on. Naomi can't even see what's going on because she's not with her. But watch this. Just because Ruth doesn't know what's going on, And just because Naomi can't see it, that does not mean that God is not at work. We see clearly that he is. Let's just name that together. Because there are times we desperately want God to take some kind of action. And because we don't see that he's at work in precisely the way that we want him to work at precisely the time we want him to do it and in exactly the way we want him to do it, so we conclude that God is not at work. Listen, just because you can't see God at work does not mean that he's not at work. And that's exactly what happens here. So Ruth doesn't know, Naomi doesn't know, but God is at work. 
And Ruth is confused and even asked, why would you be so kind to me? Look at it in chapter 2 and verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you, the covenant name there for God, Yahweh in verse 12, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge." So Boaz is saying, yeah, I mean, God is at work here, and I, and I know he's going to protect you and provide for you, and he's doing it through me. And he uses this word, wings, that's going to be important as we go on in the story, that she's under God's wings of protection, that God's providing for Naomi and for Ruth. So Boaz feeds her, he sends her home with a bunch of food, she gets home, and Naomi says, where did you get all this food? And she says, well, I went to this guy's field whose name is Boaz. And Naomi blesses him. And in chapter 2 and verse 20, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he, Boaz, be blessed by the Lord, a covenant name for God, whose kindness, and you need to understand that word is chesed, God's covenant love, his covenant faithfulness, his steadfast love. So may Boaz be blessed by the Lord whose kindness, whose kindness? The Lord's kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. So you see covenant language, and Naomi is beginning to see that God is providing for her. She's beginning to see that it's the Lord's faithfulness that is causing them to have all this food that they have. She's beginning to see that the Lord has not abandoned her. And he shows her that through the generosity of Boaz and the faithfulness of Ruth. Naomi goes on to say, this man is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Now let me explain that. If a man at this time died childless, his next of kin was to take his wife and his land and to, and to redeem it by producing offspring for the deceased. And that provided security for the widow, and it kept the land in the family. So when Naomi says, he's one of our kinsmen redeemers, then the original audience, when they hear this, they are thinking, uh-oh, this is a love story, right? There's going to be some romance, Let's get ready for a wedding. That's what the original audience is thinking. This is a love story. But as you read the rest of chapter 2, Ruth continues to go day after day, and the romance does not develop. Seven or eight weeks, and still the chapter ends, and she lived with her mother-in-law. You almost hear the disappointment. We thought there was going to be this romance, a kinsman redeemer. She continued to go every day and work in the fields. And she still lived with her mother-in-law. You almost hear the disappointment. So as we get to the beginning of chapter 3, Naomi says, Ruth, you have helped me by going and getting food when we didn't have food. I want to help you. By helping you get a husband when you don't have a husband. So she comes up with this plan, which basically is, go tell Boaz you want him to marry you. (laughs) 
Now, I don't know if you want to take that as dating or courting kind of advice, but that's her advice to Ruth. But she does have some specifics for that culture. She says, listen, why don't you go and get washed up, put on perfume, put on your best clothes, and go to the threshing floor. After the harvest, they would be threshing. They would pull something heavy over the grain, or they would have the animals walk on it or roll a stone over it. It would separate the husk from the kernel. The husk would blow away, and they would be engaged in this process for some time, and they would just stay at the threshing floor. They wouldn't even go home to sleep or to eat. They would eat right there. They would sleep right there until it was all done. So she says, go to the threshing floor. That's where Boaz will be. And after he eats and drinks and and lies down, go over and uncover his feet and lie down at his feet. Now, we don't know exactly what that means. I read a lot of commentators that said a lot of things. But it shouldn't surprise us, right? Because as you go from culture to culture, and especially over time, some of the things that vary the most are courting and dating rituals or techniques or things that people do, right? So we don't understand exactly what this is, but clearly Ruth is proposing to Boaz, and I'll let you think about the theology of that if you think the guy always has to ask the girl, but she clearly proposes to him, and he hears it that way, all right? Look at the text. Look at chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Your translation may say a kinsman redeemer. So she basically proposes to Boaz. And look what she does. She uses the exact words. Remember Boaz had said, may the Lord protect you with his wings. And then she says... Put the wings, put your garment, put the wings over me because you're a kinsman redeemer. She's saying, yeah, God does protect people. He does cover them in his wings, but how does he do that? He can do it a lot of different ways, but one of the ways is through covenantally faithful people who love one another well as the hands and the feet of Christ. So basically she's saying, don't just say, may the Lord cover you with his wings, Be the wings of the Lord. Be that that you wished for me. If you read the text, it's really funny. Boaz blesses her, and he says, Bless you that you didn't run after the the younger men, whether rich or poor, that you were willing to have me. He seems to be flattered by that. And he says, I will marry you, but there's just one problem. There is one more closely related to Elimelech than I am, and if he will marry you, then you should let him do so. But if he's not willing to, then I will marry you. Wait until just before daylight, because it's safer then, and then go home. And Boaz sends her home with even more food than he had sent before. And so Ruth comes in, and of course Naomi asks, well, how did it go? How did you fare, my daughter, she asks. (laughs) Wonder if she's been up all night waiting. I'm sure she has been, right? And look what Ruth says to her, beginning in verse 16. She comes, how did you fare? Verse 17, Ruth says, she told her everything Boaz had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back to your mother-in-law with your hands empty. Oh my, where have we heard that word before? 
We heard it when Naomi was complaining and when she was bitter. And she said, don't call me sweet. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter because the Lord has put me in a place where I am empty. And here, as we keep going in the text, we see where now Boaz, who is a picture of covenant faithfulness and love, is repeating God through Boaz, saying the same exact word that Naomi had used, right? So he's saying, take this back so that your mother-in-law's that she's not empty. So Naomi had said empty, then the word empty is said to Naomi. Do you hear God speaking to her, using her own words back to her, showing his covenant faithfulness and his abiding love. He's again reminding her that he is there, that he hasn't abandoned her. And chapter 3 ends, it's interesting, in verse 18, she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. She says, I know Boaz is not going to rest until this matter is resolved. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like Mara, the bitter one to me. You see a transformation has taking place. She's sounding much more pleasant. She's sounding much more sweet. She's sounding like Naomi. And so sure enough, if you read chapter 4, the next day Boaz goes to the city gate where business is conducted. He finds the person who's closer in a relationship. He says, hey, Naomi's selling the land. Do you want to buy it? And he says, yes, I will buy it. And we think, oh no, Ruth and Boaz are not going to get together. We're all sad. And Boaz explains to him, okay, well, you can buy Naomi's land, but with it, you also have to marry Ruth, the Moabite widow, who has come along and produced offspring with her. And he says, no, 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 I'm not going to do with that. And there are a lot of reasons why that doesn't work for him. Maybe it's because he has to buy the field and then take care of two widows instead of just one. Maybe it's because she's foreign, we don't know. But he just says, no, that's not going to work for me. And so Boaz says, yes, I will buy the property. He says in front of all the elders at the city gate, I will buy the property of Naomi. I will take Ruth as my wife. I will maintain the name of Elimelech with his property so that his name will not disappear and his land will pass to his heirs. I will work to see that he has an heir through Ruth. And so we pick up reading in Ruth 4, verses 13 to 17. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, I told you this book started with Naomi, it ends with Naomi. I thought Ruth is the one that had the baby. The focus is on Naomi. The women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in the land. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Oh my, there's so much going on here. Let me just point out a couple things. Number one, here at the end, Naomi, they're talking to Naomi, not to Ruth, that she's been given a redeemer, that she's been given one who will bring life. 
And the story ends with Naomi with this child in her lap. You want to guess what word the narrator uses there as we see Naomi as the story ends? Yelled. You see, Naomi lost her yelled. She complains of being empty. Boaz talks about wings. Then wings is repeated back to Boaz. Empty is repeated back to Naomi. And the story ends that she has her yelled there in her lap, her little one, her little boy. And that doesn't replace the loss that she had before, but it shows God's covenant faithfulness and his steadfast love to his people in a world affected by sin that is broken and messed up. Let me just give us a few takeaways as we leave. What do we do when we feel like Naomi? What do we do when we're dealing with a Naomi, with someone who's just so bitter because of hard things that they can't even hear the truth? Number one, we got to listen. We got to listen for God's voice. We have to listen for God to speak words of comfort and love to us. He loves you And he whispers his love to you over and over and over again in a thousand things. We need to listen for his voice. Second, look for your Ruth and your Boaz, right? God works through the people of God. And remember, even when you don't see God as at work, that doesn't mean that God's not at work. God is often at work even when we don't see him doing so. So have faith in him and look for His instruments, those he uses to minister to you, look for your Ruth, look for your Boaz. Let other people help you. Sometimes we get down and we just isolate ourselves. We get bitter. And think about what Naomi did. What did she say? Just get away from me. Go back to your family. I'm just going to go back to Bethlehem alone by myself, isolated and bitter. And then she was mean to the people when she gets back to Bethlehem. Let people help you. I know it's our tendency in bitterness to isolate ourselves, but it's not good. I would add to that, love other people well. Think about how you can help others. A lot of times when we have hard things happen to us, we just think about ourselves and keep ruminating on how bad it is and how we've been wronged and how other people should have done more than what they've done and how we're angry at God. Listen, part of Naomi's healing was helping Ruth find a husband. She perks up and is a lot happier when she starts doing that, when she starts thinking about somebody besides herself. And finally, I would just say, lavish yourself with the goodness of God. Think about the context to conclude this sermon series. We've been in Judges, where everybody is just doing whatever's right in their own eyes. And they're doing it, the refrain that we see over again, because there was no king in Israel, they're just doing what is right in their own eyes. And here this takes place at the time of the judges, but we see how God is at work in a way these folks probably could not even imagine. Because Naomi's yelled, her little boy, Obed, becomes the father of Jesse, who is the father of David. God sends David a man after his own heart, to be a good king and a good ruler over God's people. 
And King David comes and delivers God's people from the brokenness of this period of the judges when everybody did what was right in his own eyes. Keep in mind that whatever God is doing, he may be setting up something he's going to accomplish generations from now that we may not even see. So we want to trust him in his goodness and in his ways. I would conclude by saying this, as the New Testament people of God, we have even more reason to hear God whispering his covenant faithfulness and his abiding love to us. Because years after this, a thousand years later, David's greater son is born in the city of David in Bethlehem. And Jesus is an earthly descendant of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi's yelled Obed and Jesse, and David. Ruth mentioned in that genealogy of Jesus that Matthew lists in his gospel. And Jesus delivered God's people from the brokenness of everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. David's greater son entered into our world of hardship and suffering and pain. And he tasted the bitterness of hard times, so he knows what we face, and so he can sympathize with us in our weakness. He intercedes for us, praying what we should pray for ourselves, and gives us access to the Father. Through the person and work of Christ, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, Through all of that, God says to you, and he says to me, please know that hard times in your life do not mean that I have abandoned you. Please know that I'm with you in the midst of hard times. And I will always be with you working all things for your good because of my steadfast love for you. Let's pray and ask God to give us ears to hear his voice whispering these truths to us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you as people who live in a broken world with hearts full of hurt. We ask this day that you would give us hearts full of hope because we hear your voice Because we see your faithfulness in the world. We see your faithfulness in and through the people that you put around us. Oh, Father, help us to be patient and to wait on you. Help us to believe that you're at work even when we don't see what you're doing. And I pray that you would build our faith. That you would use us to be your wings, your hands, and your feet. And that we would model that we would picture, that we would demonstrate your covenant faithfulness and your steadfast love in the way that we live in this world. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.